The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Good afternoon and welcome to Friday, everyone. We made it through together. Congratulations. We did it once again. We've got a great show lined up for you this afternoon, as I promised we would yesterday uh, on yesterday's show. We have uh, Tim Adams, the creator of Free Footy, joining us just after 2.30. They've got some very ambitious plans to expand the program, not only geographically, but sport-wise. We're going to uh, check in with Minister of Labor uh, Christina Gray about uh, the STEP program, a program I think was initiated back in, if I'm not mistaken, 2016, uh, but the 2019 edition is open for applications and there's been some changes. And then coming up after three o'clock, we'll have Roland Van Mures from AMA Travel in studio to take your questions about travel and to tell us about some hot spots for 2019 and some uh, pretty important information on travel and cancellation insurance and to take your questions as well as well at 4960063 or by text 63630 let's wait until 3 to start that uh, because I'll lose them on the text line somewhere uh, I'm Andrew Gross Jalen Nye on vacation uh, still until Monday she'll uh, rejoin the show at 2 o'clock and uh, Brent and Escott is our in-studio producer this afternoon. I've got critical questions for Brendan, but we'll take our first guest first. Uh, talk about PTSD has become more acceptable. The stigma, though, uh, continues among many first responders. A program proposed by the Alberta Critical Incident Advisory Council, which was set up after the Fort McMurray wildfire, is looking for another $600,000 in provincial funding. Uh, they want to have a 24-7 hotline for first responders, along with an app that will connect them with peer volunteers. We're joined now by Dr. Jeff Sitch, Clinical Director of the Alberta Critical Incident Provincial Network. That's a big title. Uh, Dr. Sitch, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, thanks for the invitation to uh, speak about this really important initiative. Well, it really is. And, I mean, it's one where, you know, it's a problem that uh, periodically comes up and then, you know, you sort of think, are we doing everything we can be doing? And uh, and then it rears its ugly head again. So maybe perhaps we could first start by describing the challenge facing first responders after the Fort McMurray wildfires that resulted in the creation of the Alberta Critical Incident Provincial Network in the first place. Sure. Um, just speaking from sort of a fire standpoint, we know that there's approximately 14,000 firefighters in the province of Alberta that belong to about 450 departments. The majority of those don't reside in a large center. The other part of it is that these individuals take time away from their, their, their employment, from their careers to actually respond in their communities and within Alberta to the crisis that we as civilians encounter, whether it be MVAs or uh, motor vehicle accidents or firefighters, uh, fires. What we came to understand after the Fort McMurray wildfire is that these people deployed, that they went back after fighting the fire to their home community, and that they were affected, but they didn't have any resource. There was no mechanism of checking in on these individuals and the psychological impact of what they were exposed to, watching children's plate uh, items in the yard burn, houses burn down, uh, communities being destroyed by the wildfire. And part of the initiative was we realized that we needed to phone and check in on these individuals. We needed to have a peer, another firefighter phone and say, how are you doing? What you were exposed to, is it having an impact? And through making about those 800 calls, we found that there was a significant number of people that were really struggling. We found that there were even individuals that were looking for resources that couldn't find them or 
because of stigma, uh, didn't feel comfortable, but we also found a segment of those individuals were either thinking about or planning suicide to end the, 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 the emotional pain or turmoil, turmoil that we're in. And so out of that, uh, what, we, what we found was there is this, this need, this almost social responsibility that when we ask first responders to go in on our worst days, our worst events as civilians, there is a responsibility to sort of make sure that what they've seen that we minimize the impact. And up until now, every program has been reactive. Something bad happens and we go out and say, how are you doing? What we're wanting to do with the uh, Alberta Critical Incident Advisory Council and Peer Network is be a proactive building resiliency, having peers that do the job reach out and teach and train and support those to be prepared for what they're going to be doing in their job but then also have a wraparound service that says we'll check in with them if they are exposed to something. And then also if these people need more, there's a direct link to the more professional supports and services. So this is where it came from, and this is where we're going to be able to provide these services to our public safety personnel um, throughout the province. You know, I suspect most people are not aware of just how big this problem is. And I know I had read, and I wish I had it in front of me right now, but there was a University of Regina study uh, this would be, of course, Saskatchewan, that found, clo- found close to 45%, 45% of first responders uh, suffer one or more mental health conditions. That's a staggering number, but is that number similar here in Alberta, do you think? Well, actually, um, so, so that study was done by Nick Carlton, who was actually on, one, on the board of this initiative that mm. we're starting, so I can actually speak to those numbers. Great. Um, this is a pan-Canadian study, so actually it is a Canadian study that's, that looked at all aspects of first responders within Canada. And while your numbers are correct, there's an even more staggering statistic in there that said that living in a Western province puts our first responders at a higher rate of having a psychological injury than anywhere else in Canada. So we know that, in fact, Western Canadians that do this work by the study that came out in 2018, so it's a recent study, we know that there's a problem. And for the first time, we're actually able to speak to the amount of people that are affected by it. But there's a more important study that Nick did, um, Nick Carlton did through the University of Regina that talked about actually the risk of suicide. So as a follow-up study, what he found was that in um, a lifetime, so, so we looked at suicide rates in first responders um, over the lifetime, and what we know is they're substantially greater than in the general population. So whether it is thinking about planning or attempting suicide, um, we know that those numbers are about three times the general population. Wow. And there's a, you know, uh, I had a light bulb moment as you spoke off the top of this conversation about the geogra- the geographical uh, challenge I hadn't thought about before that these individuals may be coming from outside of major metropolitan centers in order to assist. And I'm thinking of Humboldt, for example, and I had some involvement with uh, first responders at a symposium in um, in Humboldt or near Humboldt. And, and everybody was from everywhere, and a lot of them were struggling. This is the exact type of thing we're talking about. Absolutely. And then the other part of it is, uh, I think that we, 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 we take our first responders for granted in the province. They work in small communities that they live in, and they're more likely to be responding to family members, friends, their neighbors, mm. their colleagues. And so the degree of connectedness 
of the individuals that they're going to be responding to um, has an increased risk of having that psychological impact. So you're right, uh, there's sort of the big seven or nine fire services within Alberta out of 450. And what our real focus is, is yes, there's a need that goes across the province in all fire services, but there's a big gap because the other problem is that if I'm going to go and ask for help, it might be the neighbor wife it might be the neighbor's cousin that is the service provider in the community and up until now there's been a stigma attached with reaching out for i can't tell people that i'm impacted by what i'm exposed to in my job uh that there's a weakness or it's going to somehow make people um not not trust me in my role as a first responder so we we have this expectation that our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members that volunteer and their time and their efforts to respond to our worst day um, should should just be able to do it without an impact. And I think over the last year, we're starting to see that increased awareness of the, the just the amount of impact. Unfortunately, we have these numbers that, that we're, you know, every month we're sort of calculating and adding into the number of losses due to suicide that are directly related in our public safety personnel to what they're exposed to in the line of work. Wow. Yeah, I have to ask because you know, talking about numbers and and you know, as you've said and I've said, these numbers are staggering. But they are only looking at first responders because you'd have to think that the effect on family would be quite substantial as well, and those numbers would not be included. Right, and, and you know, one of my my pet peeves is talking about just PTSD because what we actually know in our public safety personnel, the rates of depression, anxiety, substance use, and relationship breakdown are actually greater than the rates of PTSD. And those individuals that are depressed, anxious, or have relationship breakdown or sub- using substances are no less impacted than those that have PTSD. But we're focusing on this one narrow aspect when the impact is far greater. Go back to the statistics that you quoted, which is 42% of first responders um, have one or more uh, psychological disorders as a result of their service. So we know that's almost half. Wow. Those people are impacting their children, their, their, their spouses, their co-workers. It really has a ripple effect through our community and, 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 a, and a high uh, financial and social cost. So, uh, you know, not taking away from the network that you wish to expand, but one follow-up question before we get to that. Um, is there something missing in the training or you talk about being proactive i know rcmp for example when they train at depot all their classrooms display horrific pictures the ones that you don't get to see when you take the tour of depot but the can the cadets get to see uh, to sort of acclimatize them to the idea of what they might see once they're out in the field and and i'm sure the same is done for first responders uh, ems fire here but is there something missing from the training as well you know over the, the course of the, the work that i do with uh, first responders um, I inevitably hear I, I wasn't prepared for what I was going to see. Uh, I, words can't describe and pictures can't give the whole context of, you know, responding to uh, a motor vehicle accident where, you know, it's, uh, it's a family in the car and, and the, 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 the horrific smells and sounds and sights that they come across. There's, I don't think there's any video or picture um, that I can think of that would adequately train a person to do that. But what we actually know has a bigger effect is a person who's done that job sitting down as a peer-to-peer, being able to prepare the new recruits for what they're likely to encounter. Mm-hmm. But the most important part of it is, is it's normalizing the experience 
over and over again, I hear first responders that go to their first maybe motor vehicle fatality, and they think that their response is abnormal, and is this job for me, and what's wrong with me that I'm the only one affected? And by having a peer-to-peer relationship that does this resiliency and resistance training, they actually come to understand that, no, they're human, they're impacted just like everybody else on scene. What everybody else on scene has is different coping strategies. Hmm. So we try to normalize it and reduce the stigma. However, this is fairly new in, in first responders. This is a fairly new um, sort of genre and, and area of focusing on the, the mental health. There's been always the fitness for duty, the physical strength, and, you know, can you do your job and can, you use the, can we train you to use the piece of equipment? But the, 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 the piece of equipment that has the most value is the, is the, the psychological aspect of our first responders. And yet that's gone unaddressed for so long. But we do see these new initiatives and research saying that we actually know how to build resistance, resiliency within these individuals. And we have structured evidence, best practice programs. And that's part of what our network is also partly rolling out is that that resistance and resiliency training too. We're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Sitch, the clinical director of the Alberta Critical Incident Provincial Network. Um, So you have this network in place and operating, but what you want to do is expand it. So where is it now? Where do you want to get it to? Yeah, so after the uh, Fort McMurray wildfire, um, we had a federal grant that we were able to go and uh, train peers throughout the fire service in the province. So those last year, we've been going around and doing evidence-based peer support training. The best program is used by about 4,000 departments around the world, including the United Nations, and it really is best approach for people who do first responder um, work to keep psychologically healthy. So over this last year, we've trained about 300 peers throughout the province uh, from, from every corner of the province. But what we know is, just like any skill, we need to train and then maintain and be able to offer support. So we have 300 people that took time out. Many of them are volunteer, paid on call, that took their time to come and take this training with no remuneration that they're volunteering their time to be a peer within their jurisdiction or locale or mutual aid, you know, wherever, wherever is needed. And what we believe is we need to have a structure in place to provide them with ongoing training with that sort of how do we activate peers when a person three o'clock in the morning needs help, where do they call and how can we get them in contact with a peer? And then how do we make sure that those peers are stay healthy as well, that what what they're doing in their work of supporting their colleagues doesn't have a psychological impact on them, and that they have those resources, and that if the person that they're supporting needs more, that we no longer have a gap in a service to hand this person off who might need more formal, maybe mental health support. One of the key areas that that I think that we we struggle with is thinking that this is best done within the formal mental health world, that that somehow formal mental health is a better uh, resource for our first responders, but the research doesn't support that. The research supports that peer-to-peer support is superior to formal mental health, that it actually, keeping people healthy, keeps them um, uh, more resistant and resilient, and that if we have those in place, the number of those that would need to access formal mental health will actually be significantly less. Interesting. Uh, so aside from staying informed on this topic, what can any listener do? Really, I, I don't expect they can do anything except watch and hope. I think that 
um, first of all, I have a reasonable expectation of, of when, you know, I, I, I default to this as well. I'm driving home and I hear that, you know, there's an, uh, an accident on a highway and I think of it as an inconvenience. Hmm. But I think what I'd like to really do is, is change the mindset to think about what it must be like for that first responder on scene to be crawling into that crushed vehicle in the back seat, comforting a child or a family member or somebody who's seriously injured as they are extracted and, and transported to a hospital. I think having a lot more compassion and really talking about something that we probably would otherwise like to avoid thinking about, which is are some of the events that happen that we'd rather stay oblivious to the number of first responders right now with uh, drug overdoses, with responding to uh, scenes of suicide. Uh, I think it's been a hard conversation for civilians to have, for the general population to have, that says these people who volunteer and or sign up for this job come across the worst things that humanity and society can sort of put out there. How can we believe that it won't have a psychological injury? How can we believe that it won't have an impact? You know, we're way over time, but I wanted to give you as much time as possible. But I have to tell you, in the early part of our conversation, when you were describing what a first responder might typically face, particularly on their first call, and I'm not going to embarrass this person, but somebody texted right away uh, saying, oh, I don't want to hear this on the afternoon news. And it just took me aback because I thought, you don't want to hear about it? How'd you like to live it? However, we see reports of first responder suicides making the news all the time, and I'd rather have this conversation than the conversation about another loss of life to suicide because the first responder didn't have the support that was needed for them because they do have an important role. And think about where we'd be in society if we didn't have people that would respond to our hour of need. And what we actually know is that in our volunteer fire service, our paid-on-call fire service retention rates and the... um, the, the rate of, of recruitment is significantly less. So there is going to be a gap at some point if we don't address this and help people stay healthy. Well, hopefully we've uh, done something to shed a little more light on it today, Dr. Sitch. I appreciate your time this afternoon, and I apologize to uh, my in-studio operator who's probably banking advertisements for next half hour. Thank you for taking the time today, sir. A pleasure. Thank you. All right. An interesting conversation with the doctor. Lots of show yet to come. But I did say, uh, Brendan, that I had a question for you. And uh, not to put you on the spot, as I often tell people who talk to me for the first time, um, you're a millennial. I sure am. All right, great. Uh, So, hey, listen, millennial, um, you familiar with the glowing puck? (laughs) I know what it is, yeah. All right. The failed experiment. Well, apparently it's coming back. Have you heard that? I did. I saw that on Twitter this morning uh, in typical millennial fashion. That's where I get most of my news. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, basically, the gist of it is what? They're going to do it for a period? Was that kind of the idea? Well, you know, they were sort of a little uh, hazy on that, but I think what they're going to do, and this is, of course, a game in which the Oilers are playing uh, the Kings on the Fox uh, broadcast. I think what they're going to do is just broadcast it normally, but what they'll do is uh, maybe highlights uh, replays, uh, you know, some segment pieces between periods. They'll put the the blue glow in to show fans at home where the puck went. Right. Okay. So I don't really remember how this looked back in the day. I was still a terrific when they implemented that. Uh, but did do you remember it? Yes, because I, I, I remember, remember it was really polarizing. You know what? It, it it's a black puck on a white surface. So. Listen, if you have even average vision, you should be able to, to see it. But I, this happened, what, in the 90s? I'm still offended by it, quite frankly. And, and at the time, we didn't have social media. So, you know, you didn't get the same kind of reaction you're going to get on Saturday. But 
people were really polarized by this one. Some people actually loved it. And and others, I think the purists like myself, who've been watching hockey for the better part of 50 years, was just like, what are you doing? But Americans particularly loved it. Right. Uh, Americans in the 90s also loved things like Crystal Pepsi and <laughs> boy bands. So yeah, that's fair. It, was, uh, it was a very progressive time. I'm curious to see how it looks now in my adult life. That uh, Let's give it a chance. All right. Well, you know, and that's very millennial. millennial of you. So, all right, well, give it a chance on Saturday. I don't know. I'd be watching the Fox broadcast, but I'm sure it'll be on YouTube or something. Uh, we'll give it a, and then we'll chat again next week. All right. Sounds like a plan to me. Fair enough. The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.